Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From Atlas Obscura, Michigan's blood-sucking parasite is Britain's royal delicacy. Oh. Mm. Any guesses? Mosquitoes? Bats? <laughs> Leeches? Mm, we're getting closer here. Let's, let's back up a little. In 2002, a journalist and resident of Gloucester, England named Martin Kirby had a problem. Queen Elizabeth II's Golden Jubilee was coming up that year, and he wanted to provide a traditional delicacy for the occasion. A lamprey pie. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And there's a bit of history to this. The Queen's coronation in 1953 saw the city supplying the new monarch with a truly epic lamprey pie. It was 42 pounds, 18 inches high. It was a pastry masterpiece decorated with the royal coat of arms and crown. Wow. So Martin Kirby also happens to be a founding member of the Court Lee of Barton St. Mary. And it's a group of Gloucester history enthusiasts who have brought back centuries-old traditions like declaring a mock mayor. And that's why they got the idea of resurrecting the lamprey pie for the monarch in honor of the Golden Jubilee. But the biggest problem was that sea lampreys, which once were so plentiful through the River Severn, they're now on the brink of extinction. Mm. So it's a protected species if you were to use a lamprey from the UK. And if they wanted to make this pie, they had to source it. So (laughs) good news. One person's delicacy is another region's invasive species. So let's talk about the sea lamprey. It's also known as Petromazon marinus. And it, in fact, looks like something you'd find in a Hellraiser movie. Yeah, It is virtually unchanged over the last 360 million years of evolution. They're also referred to as living fossils that kind of look maybe like an eel or a fish, but happen to be neither. In fact, these are parasites with a gaping suction cup ringed with row upon row of teeth for a mouth. And what they do is attach themselves to the sides of other cold-blooded swimmers, and then they use a serrated tongue to rasp away scales and leech away blood, slowly killing their prey. And yes, in fact, they do have an uncanny resemblance to the Sarlacc from Star Wars, just on a (laughs) smaller scale. But they have been a delicacy in England for centuries. King Henry I was so fond of them that according to a historian, he died in 1135 in Normandy of a, quote, surfeit of lampreys. (laughs) This unfortunate incident may have been why the citizens of the city of Gloucester opted not to send King John a lamprey pie in 1200, but the monarch was so angered that Gloucester, quote, did not pay him sufficient respect in lampreys that he fined them Uh, in revenge. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) I I mean, they were so wanted. And then from then on, Gloucester supplied lamprey pies to the royal court for special occasions. But in the subsequent years, lamprey supplies dwindled and the pies just kind of fell out of fashion. (laughs) But 
these resourceful vampires made their way from the Atlantic Ocean into the lakes and rivers of North America via man-made waterways. Wow. So in Britain, they're protected, but over here, <laughs> they s literally suck. Mm. And what's terrible about them is a single female lamprey lays between 30,000 and 100,000 eggs at a time. Wow. wow. By the 1960s, sea lampreys were killing 100 million pounds of fish in the Great Lakes every year. And 85% of the remaining catch had gashes and circular Aww. teeth marks from lamprey attacks. So when Mark Gaydon, this guy, first got the call from Gluster in 2002, he was like, you guys want me to send you some of these? <laughs> he was all too happy to ship them over. So he FedExed them over to us. <laughs> and Gaydon's lamprey wound up in a masterpiece of architectural pastry shaped like the Gloucester Cathedral. So you can see a picture of it. It's remarkable. But as for the taste, well, for security reasons, the queen didn't actually partake of the pie. <laughs> so the taste was not, quote, overly important. But when they made the 2012 one, our local area TV crew cooked some of the lamprey and mixed it with bacon and potato mash. Mm. They said it was all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine, like I eat eel as part of sushi. So like I imagine it probably tastes fine. My thing is if you're cooking something that big, like 18 inches thick, that's really hard to get the middle cooked. I'd be worried oh, that it would Ugh. be at all safe from food poisoning. I don't eat eel only because I've seen them swimming and <laughs> the sight of that was so horrific. I There's no amount of sweet umami sauce that can get rid of that for me. <laughs> I admit, I don't want to see those teeth on my plate for sure. But I don't want to see a regular fish head on my plate either. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm against heads in general. <laughs> well, if you want to make Jennifer's day, send her a lamprey pie without the head and we'll be sure to report back on whoever we can find to eat it. That's right, because the taste <laughs> is not important. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from sciencealert.com. It's titled, The Frogs Vanished, Then People Got Sick. This Was No <gasps> Harmless Coincidence. Huh. Uh oh. Yeah. So keeping it on a tiny little weird animals theme. Uh -huh. <laughs> in the 1980s, ecologists in Costa Rica and Panama began to notice a quiet and dramatic decline in amphibian numbers. Frogs and salamanders in this part of the world were falling prey to an awful fungal pathogen, the Trachochytrium dendrobatidis, and they were doing so at such a rapid rate that researchers at the time feared a wave of local extinctions. Some scientists now argue this pathogen, called BD for short, thank you, has caused, <laughs> the, <laughs> has caused the greatest recorded loss of biodiversity attributable to a disease ever being responsible for significant declines in at least 501 amphibian species, including 90 Dang. extinctions wow. from Asia Aww. to South America. Yeah. Rude. Super rude. <laughs> so... That is obviously a massive claim, but amphibians are now considered among the most threatened group of animals on Earth, and the worldwide spread of this fungus and others like it are at least partly to blame. Frogs and salamanders directly influence mosquito population sizes because mm. mosquitoes are a key source of food, which means the number of amphibians could ultimately influence the vectors, living organisms that can transmit infectious pathogens that spread deadly human diseases. Yeah. Using Central America as a case study, researchers have now tried to illustrate how creatures like frogs may ultimately benefit human health. Comparing an amphibian decline map and malaria incidence map between 1976 and 2016, researchers found a clear pattern that could be predicted with high accuracy and confidence by their model. 
In the eight years after substantial amphibian losses from BD, there was a spike in malaria cases equivalent to about one extra case per 1,000 people. This means a loss of amphibians in Central America could have possibly driven a 70 to 90% increase in how many people were getting sick. Wow. After eight years, though, the estimated effect is suddenly reduced, and researchers aren't sure why. Perhaps, the authors suggest, an uptick in malaria cases prompts greater use of insecticides, which then mm. lowers cases again in line with this cycle. The authors write, This previously unidentified impact of biodiversity loss illustrates the hidden human welfare costs of conservation failures. We're stuck together whether we like it or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's probably too late to stop this fungus, but it's good for us to know, like, hey, things that threaten frogs threaten us. Like, you can't yeah. just be like, nah, they're frogs, whatever. Like, it matters. <laughs> Which, you know, I feel like humans have said about basically every species we've ever extinct right. and it turned out to be a problem. <sighs> right, right. I mean, and even after all the work that went into trying to endear frogs as a species to humankind with efforts such as Kermit the Frog, I mean, I don't know. If you do get, better. If you get Kermit out there telling kids, hey, I eat bugs, so I'm good. Like, I don't know. That, that reduces <laughs> Kermit's appeal, I think, if they start talking well, about. <laughs> I think that would do gangbusters with the male ages. 6 to 12. That's true. Right? That's true. Demographic. You just, you just, you're aging Kermit up a little bit, but you're, you're making him Extreme edgy. bug eater. No <laughs> bug stands a chance. Yeah, that's the preteen Kermit. There model. you go. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, we're definitely sticking on a wet animal theme. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, we had octopuses attacking people's faces. This week, they've upgraded to murder. Whoa, oh, no! Okay. From the CBC, when an octopus kills, it is stealthy and calculating. So prior to this study from the University of Minnesota, the thought was that an octopus would just sort of throw all its tentacles at its food in a chaotic mess and hopefully come away with something. <laughs> <laughs> Which, Honestly, when it's been a while since I've eaten, kind of the same. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, it does seem a little naive. Like, come on, surely they're giving a little more thought to it than that. And it turns out they are. <laughs> After researchers brought in some high-speed cameras and analyzed their movements over hundreds of feedings, some really clear patterns started to emerge. First off, octopuses change how they hunt based on what they're eating. So when the researchers dropped in a crab, the octopuses used a parachuting approach, settling over them from above and completely enclosing them in one fell swoop. When they dropped in a shrimp, however, the octopus would carefully snake one tentacle out in front of the shrimp and wiggle it slightly to distract them while they <laughs> snuck up closer from behind. And <laughs> this is an important strategy because shrimp can generally move fast enough to escape an octopus if they see it coming. But it also means that an octopus is smart enough to recognize a shrimp on site and select the most effective hunting method for that situation. So co-author of the paper Trevor Wardle also noted that they found octopuses have a distinct preference for which tentacle they attack with. And apparently the way their tentacles are laid out is not like you might imagine with four on each side. Instead, they have a single central tentacle in the front and the two on either side are called the second legs, which fall roughly underneath each eye. And those eyes are pretty spread out, which is the opposite of what we've always been taught about predator versus prey animals. But I guess maybe the octopus is kind of both. But either way, its eyes see opposite sides of the world. And researchers found that whatever eye spies the prey, the second leg on that side is always the leg that reaches out and grabs it. Which does make sense in that you're not going to spin around and grab with the other leg, but it's never one of the back legs is kind of the key. Mm. 
So zoologist Michael Vecchione, who specializes in deep-sea invertebrates, says it's not actually surprising to him that octopuses have specialized limbs for killing prey within their visual range because apparently male octopuses also have specialized limbs for fertilizing females, which they don't go into at all. They're just like, oh, yeah, this is also a thing. (laughs) Each limb has its own nerve ganglia that equates to a mini brain. And other recent research has shown that these legs may be moving somewhat independently of each other, where one leg doesn't really know what the other leg is doing. Other fun octopus anatomy facts that I did not know. The octopus's central brain in its head is apparently ring-shaped, with its esophagus traveling up the middle. And Vecchioni says this most recent research is useful because cephalopods are so different, physiologically, from any other species that we consider intelligent. But... Wardle sees some loftier goals. He says, quote, we're hoping that that will inspire, you know, engineers to make fancier vehicles that maybe do underwater rescue or, you know, surgeons that could have a very highly coordinated arm system to do keyhole surgery or something like that, (laughs) which sounds to me, if you'll pardon the pun, like a fishing expedition. (laughs) I guess you got to find that grant money somehow. Like, it feels like he's just like, yeah, man, I'm studying octopuses, but I swear this is important. Like, it could be used for real science. Come on. I mean, did he reference Doc Ock in the Spider-Man franchises? <laughs> because, like, even just the, like, robotic-assisted arms doing things seems to be a direct reference. <laughs> yeah, that's what you need is that sweet Marvel money. Forget the NIH grants. You want <laughs> make a movie. That's where the real money's at. Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, let's move ashore because The Guardian has a bit about pet kangaroos. Quote, they will get you in a headlock. Australians (laughs) are warned off pet kangaroos after the second death in a hundred years. Yeah, it's a little funny, but also a little sad. So we typically think of kangaroos as kind of fun, right? But the marsupial's reputation took a hit earlier this month when a 77-year-old Western Australian man was killed by the pet Western Grey he hand-reared from a joey. Oh, I know. As Peter Eads lay dying on his Redmond farm, police were forced to shoot the three-year-old male kangaroo, which was preventing an ambulance crew from reaching the injured man. <laughs> he was yeah. like, no, you can't come and rest. That's awful. I mean, uh, listen, they're, they're not humans. They don't think the way we do, guys. Uh, or maybe they let's... do. Maybe he knew exactly <laughs> what he was doing. Well, it is believed the man had been attacked by the kangaroo earlier in the day, and it is only the second death in 100 years caused by a kangaroo in Australia. Previously, it was 1936 when a 38-year-old New South Wales man reportedly died from head injuries after trying to save his dogs from a kangaroo. A University of Melbourne behavioral ecologist Graham Colson says this week's attack was unexpected but unsurprising. Pet kangaroos are driven by the same instincts as their wild counterparts. Probably the owner was seen as another kangaroo, and presumably the kangaroo was trying to play fight or possibly even engage in more serious dominance fighting with him. Male kangaroos, lest we forget, are super strong, and their sharp nails and powerful kick is used to great effect, especially when they're fighting for any purpose. Earlier this year in March, a three-year-old girl was admitted to the hospital with head, back, and arm injuries. After a kangaroo hopped on the home porch she was playing on in Mm. the Northern Tablelands, across the border in Queensland, and just a month later, a 69-year-old female golfer was knocked to the ground and repeatedly stomped by a kangaroo at a country club. Okay. 
So, you know, the Western Grey in particular is nicknamed the boxing kangaroo. It's got (laughs) super broad shoulders. It's got long arms. The hands are as big as a human's. They grow throughout their lives. They reach sexual maturity at age four. They're pretty pumped with some serious muscle by the time they become a male, Colson says. They rear up on their tails, and that allows them to kick with their feet with big, sharp nails. But they can also wrestle, and they will get you into a headlock. So (laughs) that's the part that's funny to me is like, I can see animals kicking and biting and punching and whatever, but like the headlock, that seems like a calculated wrestling move. Where did they learn that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like you could be accidentally kicked, but an accidental headlock is a lot less likely. (laughs) I'm just imagining this alternate history where, you know, at some point, a bunch of like Greek Olympian wrestlers ended up in Australia and like were just wrestling. Wrestling kangaroos and it became part of their genetics and that's why they wrestle to this day. Right, right. <laughs> crocodile Dundee could have just as well been kangaroo Dundee, right? There you yeah. go. I mean, crocodiles do seem like they are natural wrestlers too. <laughs> Where do we get the kangaroo versus crocodile? Never mind. I, I don't want to guarantee see that. you that's a YouTube video somewhere. <laughs> guarantee. Definitely a show that was like entirely about facing off animals against each other in theoretical, like hypothetical fights. Like, and I've seen that on YouTube. Too. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying we should intentionally pit them against each other. I'm just saying I, I, someone has videotaped it. It's happened in the wild. Yeah. You know, oh it's, it's just part of our scientific discovery, as usual. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Oh, <laughs> nature is so metal. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, so we're going to take a hard left turn. Uh, <laughs> this article is from the Washington Post, and it's titled, An Exploding King, Why Queen Elizabeth II's Coffin Was Lined with Lead. Whoa! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the tradition goes back centuries and began with a practical consideration to help the bodies of deceased monarchs remain pristine, especially before modern preservation techniques. As material in coffins, lead helps keep out moisture and preserve the body for longer and prevents smells and toxins from a dead body escaping, said oh. Julie Ann Taddeo, a research professor of history at the University of Maryland. Taddeo noted that the added weight created the need for eight pallbearers rather than the usual six. Soldiers carry the coffins of deceased British monarchs following an incident in 1901 when horses pulling Queen Victoria's carriage were spooked and her coffin nearly spilled into the street. Winston <gasps> oh, no. Churchill who received the last state funeral in Britain before Elizabeth on Monday, also had a lead-filled coffin. It was so heavy that it slid off some of the pallbearers' shoulders when they had to pause on some steps, according to one of the pallbearers. When it fell to the two pushers at the back to keep the coffin from falling, the pallbearer said, Don't worry, sir, we'll look after you. (laughs) (laughs) The preservation measures are reminiscent of those used for ancient high-ranking Egyptians who were also placed in chambers rather than buried in the ground and whose bodies were immaculately preserved. And while ancient wealthy Egyptians were often buried with caches of jewels, sculptures, and other belongings, Tadio said, the queen was reported to have been buried with just her wedding band made of Welsh gold and a pair of pearl earrings. Such austerity would mean that Elizabeth, who was known to embrace frugality and plainness, was buried with fewer belongings than some of her predecessors. Queen Victoria was buried with her husband's dressing gown and a cast of his hand, and a lock of hair and a photograph of her favorite servant, with whom she was rumored to have had a romantic relationship. (laughs) That's sort of like a modern-day, like, Tutankhamen, but, like, highly more idiosyncratic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right, they didn't murder him, at least. No, 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 (laughs) but I will take a cast of his lovely. Hand. Right, right. 
Using lead in coffins is a long-lived royal tradition, said Mike Pearson, a professor at University College London's Institute of Archaeology. He said the embalmed corpse of King Edward I, who died in 1307, was found in 1774 to be well-preserved in his marble sarcophagus in Westminster Abbey. Pearson added that the practice of using lead was probably adopted around the time of Edward's death or in the century following it. Earlier kings were not embalmed. The corpse of William the Conqueror was apparently so badly decayed that his bloated abdomen exploded when priests tried to stuff his body into a stone coffin that proved too small for his bulk. Oh no! (laughs) Yeah. Mourners supposedly ran for the door to escape the putrid stench, which I believe. Oh god. So to prevent distended bellies from exploding, they line the coffins with lead, but also they're so heavy that they might drop them and dump them onto the street. So it just seems like the whole funeral procession is a bunch of disasters waiting to happen. What a waste of time and effort for what the preservation of... I don't know. Yeah, but they've tested it. They opened one hundreds of years later and it was well-preserved. So it's worth it, Angie. (laughs) So why you can have a fresher corpse when you need a fresher corpse for what exactly? So you can see the hand in the picture. No, no. (laughs) Well, the strangest thing is that it wasn't an open casket funeral either. So like this is really just about preserving the corpse, which is just going to be somewhere. So that eventually when we dig Queen Elizabeth II up in 300 years, we can, you know, make another article about it, I guess. I don't know. Right, right. Weird. I, this, to me, this all just feels like preparation for an eventual Futurama as envisioned by Futurama. Right, Where right. we just have like heads in jars that are somehow reanimated. Like that is the only good reason for corpse preservation that I can think of. Yeah, they did not mention whether or not they also use the standard kit of, you know, formaldehyde and all that stuff. It seems like that would be something you would want to do in today's day and age. But maybe there's a substantial difference between lead and formaldehyde. I don't know. Yeah, embalming works. They know that. Not everybody has a lead coffin. So yeah. they're just making it heavy on the pallbearers for no reason. That's the <laughs> Uh, very classic. <laughs> Just, you know, the, the soldiers having to stand there, having to, you know, put the king back into the coffin. Yeah, right. the whole thing. <laughs> Anyways, next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next article is from EurekaAlert.org, and it's called Tiny Swimming Robots Treat Deadly Pneumonia in Mice. Aw. Now, I need to warn y'all. I'm going to get a little salty about the title of this article. (laughs) And it's not the article's fault. They're just using the terminology that was in the research paper. However, I know that language is a living thing. It evolves. Words can change their (laughs) meaning. But if something does not have any artificial parts, it is not a robot. And (laughs) we've encountered this at least once before on this podcast, where scientists are starting to call anything that moves in a way that we influenced a robot, even -hmm. if that thing is a fully biological creature. And the logic of that is insane to me, because if you take it further, okay, like I put a treat on the other side of the room and my dog goes over there, I've manipulated his behavior. Does he suddenly qualify as a robot? No, it's ridiculous. (laughs) And I admit I am unreasonably mad about this. I probably need to go to therapy, but I just want it on the record that I am against this linguistic trend and I'm going to refuse to call these robots for the rest of this article. I'm going to use other words. So just know that the word robot appears a lot in this article, and you are not going to hear me say it. Here, here. I'm with you, Jen. We support you. With that being said, here is the scientific breakthrough that is actually very cool and does not in any way involve robots. So (laughs) 
Nanoengineers at the University of California, San Diego, have developed a special kind of algae cell that is coated with medication that fights pneumonia. And the reason this combination is more useful than just taking the medication by itself is because the algae is capable of movement. It has a long flagella that it uses to roam around its environment, which it does naturally in its pursuit of food. And this is especially helpful with diseases like pneumonia because the lungs are full of all these little wet nooks and crannies where the pathogenic bacteria can hide and be really difficult to treat. So with the algae cells digging around and exploring, you're more likely to get the medicine directly where it's needed. The medicine itself in this case is also a little bit special. It's a biodegradable polymer sphere that's coated with the cell membranes of neutrophils, which are a type of white blood cell. It's not the full cell, but these membranes are capable of absorbing and neutralizing inflammatory molecules that Mm. are produced by the body's immune system. And then inside that sphere is the traditional antibiotic. So as the algae is wiggling around, the medicine is both reducing inflammation and killing bacteria at the same time. So it's kind of three in one, right? It's the motion and the anti-inflammatory and the antibiotic all in one little package that you breathe in. Yeah, it's a very cool design. And they found that this combination of treatments plus the delivery system was far more effective in mice compared to traditional treatments and, of course, to no treatment at all. They infected the mice with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a particularly aggressive form of pneumonia that commonly infects patients who are on medical ventilation in an ICU. The mice who received no treatment died within three days, while the mice with the new treatment all lived. But most importantly, the mice who received the traditional IV antibiotic treatment needed 3,000 times as much medication to fight off the infection as the mice who breathed in the modified algae cells directly into their lungs. Mm -hmm. Co-author of the paper, Joseph Wang, noted that both the individual algae cells and the polymer spheres are naturally broken down by the body's immune system, so nothing toxic is left behind, and they're hoping to scale up to larger animal studies soon and hopefully someday human studies. I mean, this seems very cool. It's a breathing treatment instead of an injection into your bloodstream. So the other thing is like the antibiotics, when you get an IV, aside from the fact that they're trying to treat your lungs, you mess up your gut, you can mess up Mm -hmm. all the rest of your body. And they don't really talk about whether it would be useful in non-lung parts of the body. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if these algae cells could live in your bloodstream or Mm -hmm. like if they would be any good on the surface of your kidneys. I don't know. But certainly for lung diseases, they seem really, really useful. And we got a lot of lung diseases to treat. I mean, if you had lung cancer... (laughs) You know, putting these algae into your lungs to go find those tumors would be better than putting a chemotherapy drug throughout your entire bloodstream. Oh, for sure. Very, very cool stuff. Not robots. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. After listening to you describe this entire thing, I am completely with you on the robots thing. There's nothing like about this that sounds robotic whatsoever. I know. And they were also like they created microscopic robots or micro robots, as they're calling them. I'm like, what are you talking? You didn't invent a word. This is insane to me. Plus, there's the repetition of the row syllable. Why do you just call them microbots? Maybe it's a marketing thing. They're like, oh, if we call them robots, people think we control them. And it's not like weird algae stuff, you know, because there's a little bit of that, too, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, there's kind of an ick factor. But there's also like who wants to breathe in a robot? I don't know. Is that worse? I'm, in I'm not today's sure. day and age, I honestly don't know. I probably would have said <laughs> yes at some point or no. But now yeah. I say I don't know. <laughs> I think my instinct would be the robots could be hacked. 
That would be yeah. my my like mm, I'm more afraid of robots now because I don't know who could control the robots. Mm-hmm. Algae at least. I'm like the algae's just gonna wander around. Nobody can control the algae. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. SciTech Daily's got a tantalizing headline for us. The Earth's newest secret. Fundamental changes to what we know about how volcanoes work. Oh. Specifically, we're talking about recent discoveries from Iceland's Fagradalsfjall eruptions. While sampling magma from this volcano in Iceland, Earth scientist Matthew Jackson and his colleagues uncovered a process far more dynamic than anyone had assumed in the two centuries that scientists have been studying volcanoes. Quote, just when I think we've gotten close to figuring out how these volcanoes work, we get a big surprise. So (laughs) thanks to a sabbatical, a pandemic, and 780 years of melting subterranean rock, Jackson was in the right place and time to witness the birth of Fagrasdalfjall, which is specifically a fissure in the lowlands of southwest Iceland that split and exploded with magma in March 2021. By that time, everyone on the Reykjanes Peninsula was ready for some kind of eruption. He said, quote, the earthquake swarm was intense. And by earthquake swarm, he means the 50,000 temblors, some magnitude four and higher, that shook the earth for weeks and kept most of Iceland's population on edge. But the sleep deprivation was worth it. And crankiness soon turned into fascination as lava bubbled up and spattered from the hole in the ground of the relatively empty Geldingadular region. <laughs> oh, Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best, y'all, but Icelandic is not my mother tongue. <laughs> hey, the important thing is you say it with confidence. That's what matters. You know, <laughs> I'm selling it. <laughs> so when this happened, both scientists and visitors alike flocked to the area to see the newest section of the Earth's crust Form. And from the start, they were able to get close enough to sample the lava continuously due to the lava's slow flow and ample winds that blew the noxious gases away in the other direction. Hmm. And what the geologists were trying to find was how deep in the mantle the magma originated. So the assumption has been that a magma chamber fills up slowly over time and then the magma becomes well mixed and then it just drains over the course of the eruption. But in Iceland, there is a more than a factor of 1,000 higher rates for change for key chemical indicators. Hmm. And this variability is a result of subsequent batches of magma flowing into the chamber from deeper in the mantle. So it's a little difficult to explain, but let's use a lava lamp (laughs) example. Okay. (laughs) So think of the lava lamp in your mind. You have a hot light bulb at the bottom. It heats up a blob and the blob rises, cools, and then sinks. So its heat causes regions of the mantle to rise and plumes form and they move buoyantly upward to the surface. Molten rock from these plumes accumulates in chambers and crystallizes. Gases escape through the crust and the pressure builds until magma finds a way to escape. So as described in the paper, what erupted for the first few weeks was that expected depleted magma type that had been accumulating in the reservoir. But by April, evidence showed that the chamber was being recharged by deeper enriched type melts with a different composition. So they've basically been able to observe changes in magma composition basically in real time, which is Mm -hmm. unheard of, right? We don't often have a record of the first stages of most eruptions because these get buried from lava flows from the later stages. So for the scientists, this result presents a key constraint in how models of volcanoes around the world will be built. 
Still not clear how representative this phenomenon is of other volcanoes or what role it plays in triggering an eruption. But at least we've got a little bit more of the story. Yeah, well, and I think it gives us an idea of the speed of the lava lamp, so to speak, like how fast (laughs) stuff is coming from the bottom up to the top, which Mm -hmm. tells us something about how fast it's churning under there, even if it isn't necessarily breaking through the surface in every volcano. Yeah, you know what I mean, exactly. So, if we can have better reads on the different variables and factors, it could lead to better prediction or at least just monitoring of volcanic activity. So, you know, when the volcano bursts out of the middle of Los Angeles, we'll, we'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we uh, we knew this was coming. Like, you know, get your bingo cards ready. We're only in 2022. There's a lot left of the decade to go. Right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from BBC.com. It's titled Ukraine War. Russians flee to border after military call up. I would too. Yeah, I I figured, uh, you know, normally you keep it pretty light and away from the most intense politics, but this seems pretty important and thought y'all would like an update. So queues have formed at border crossings since President Vladimir Putin announced a partial military mobilization on Wednesday, which could see 300,000 people summoned to fight. The Kremlin says reports of fighting age men fleeing are exaggerated. But oh, sure. on the yeah, <laughs> of course that's what they're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> but on the border with Georgia, miles-long queues of vehicles have formed including men trying to escape the war. Some of those heading into the neighboring country have used bicycles to bypass lines of cars and evade a ban on crossing on foot. Mm-hmm. One of these men who did not want to be named told the BBC's Nina Akhmetelli that he had been waiting since 9 local time on Thursday and managed to cross over late that evening. Georgia is one of the few neighboring countries that Russians can enter without needing to apply for a visa. Finland, which shares a 1,300-kilometer or 800-mile border with Russia, does require a visa for travel and also reported an increase in traffic overnight, but said it was at a manageable level. Other destinations reachable by air, such as Istanbul, Belgrade, or Dubai, have seen ticket prices skyrocket immediately after the military call-up was announced, with some destinations sold out completely. Turkish media have reported a large spike in one-way ticket sales, while remaining flights to non-visa destinations can cost thousands of euros. Germany's interior minister signaled on Thursday that Russians fleeing the draft would be welcome in her country. Latvia, Estonia, and the Czech Republic struck a different tone, saying they would not offer fleeing Russians refuge. Hmm. Sergei, not his real name, says he's already been called up and describes that I would break my arm, my leg, anything to avoid the draft. The 26-year-old PhD student and lecturer was expecting a delivery of groceries the night before the Putin address when two men arrived in civilian clothes, handing him military papers to sign. Wow. The Kremlin said only people who had done their military service and had special combat experience would be called up. But Sergei has no military experience and his stepfather is worried as dodging the draft is a criminal offense in Russia. The call-up sparked protests in major Russian cities, including Moscow and St. Petersburg, on Tuesday, resulting in a reported 1,300 arrests. There were also reports from Russia that some of those detained for protesting had been handed draft papers while in custody at police stations. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, when asked about the report, said that doing so was not against the law. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky urged Russians to resist the mobilization during his nightly address on Thursday. Referring to Russian deaths in the war, he said, Want more? No? Then protest. (gasps) Fight back, run away, or surrender to Ukrainian captivity. Which, yeah. It it seems a little lame to say fighting words, right? But, like... (laughs) Very Zelensky is, is bold, man. I got to mm-hmm. give him so much credit for everything over the past year or nine months or whatever it's been. Like, he owns it, you know? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, the leadership real. qualities that he has shown have been remarkable. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so hard as well to try to imagine. I mean, they, when we had a draft in Vietnam, there were people who left for sure. But the idea of miles long of people at the border just immediately escaping, like people who left during Vietnam, they left in an orderly manner, and it was really more of a like, do I make this life altering decision to leave and possibly never be able to come back? It was much less of a, like, immediate fleeing, get the hell out, because if you don't, you're going to die. Yeah. The UK's Ministry of Defense, commenting on the call-up in its Wednesday morning briefing, noted that the move is effectively an admission that Russia has exhausted its supply of willing volunteers to fight in Ukraine, it said. There is also speculation that the military mobilization could be larger than formally announced. The independent Novaya Gazeta newspaper, which moved its operations to Europe amid a post-war crackdown on media, reported that Vladimir Putin's decree contains an additional paragraph which has been classified and kept secret. <laughs> the newspaper alleges that the secret paragraph allows for a call-up of up to a million people rather than the reported 300,000, citing an unnamed government source. Yeah. And that's right where it ends, but one you know more recent piece of relevant news, in my opinion, is that I don't know if y'all heard about or saw this, but earlier this week, I think it was either yesterday or maybe Sunday, there was actually a video shown of a recruiting office in Russia where a guy goes in and shoots the lead <gasps> recruiter. And apparently he wasn't even in the draft. It was his friend. But that's a rumor. I'm not sure about that. Um, but wow. the video is definitely there. It's very intense. So, you know, there, there's yeah. a lot happening around this topic. Oh, there. my gosh. I mean, and that's the thing, really, is like if everybody protests, they can't stop them all. But if you only have isolated protests, you know, they, yeah. they can arrest them, they can draft them immediately and everyone else is running. That's really tough. <sighs> the good news is the one thing you don't want is an army that's not motivated to fight. So, <laughs> yeah. like, True. even if you draft all these guys, if they just walk out there and just stand there and immediately surrender. I've read reports already that the Ukrainian defense ministry has a hotline that they're yeah. encouraging soldiers to call in to, like, preemptively surrender. Surrender. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good for them. Like, they should make it easy. They shouldn't, you know, be taking vengeance on the populace. They should be like, yeah, absolutely. Come on in and surrender. We'll make it easy for you. Mm -hmm. You know? Hey, you won't die. How about that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's get as many people out of this alive as we can. Mm -hmm. And except Putin. He can be done. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Super Deep Royal Diamonds Revealing Earth's Secrets. How America Saw Vincent Van Gogh and Mysterious Alien Goldfish May Have Been a Mollusk. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>